Welcome back to MLEX's podcast covering regulatory affairs around the world. It's great to have your company and for our listeners in the Northern Hemisphere who may be on their summer break, we hope you're able to unwind after the events of the past six months. My name is James Paniki. I'm from MLEX's Asia-Pacific team. And this week, we thought we'd recap recent developments in the global clash between digital platforms, in particular Facebook and Google, and ailing media publishers. The broad strokes of this clash will be familiar to you already. Media companies are hemorrhaging advertising dollars to the platforms and want to be compensated for the content they provide. The platforms argue that they aren't themselves media publishers, but simply intermediaries connecting readers with media content, and as such, shouldn't have to pay the publishers at all. The backdrop of this debate is, of course, that legacy media is in crisis. A business model based on advertising revenue is collapsing, and the publishers are demanding regulatory intervention. The question now is not so much whether the relationship between publishers and platforms will be regulated, but what form that regulation will take. In European jurisdictions, we've seen regulators build a case around copyright laws, and we'll cross to Brussels to tease that out in just a moment. But in other parts of the world, the issue has been seen through the lens of competition law, and Australia appears to be the front-runner of this approach, with the competition regulator, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, or ACCC, last week releasing a draft for a mandatory code of conduct to govern the relationship between publishers and platforms. MLEX senior correspondent Laurel Henning is based in Sydney. She's been covering the ACCC's work on this over the past couple of years, and she joins me now. Laurel, the media code announced last week has been brewing for some time. So can you firstly explain uh, where it has come from and perhaps tell us something about the timing of the announcement? So the timing of last week's announcement was really a sort of an offshoot from the ACCC's landmark digital platforms inquiry, which was published in its finality uh, sort of this time last year. And one of the findings from that inquiry was we need to redress the bargaining imbalance between news publishers and digital platforms. Originally, this was meant to be done through a voluntary code of conduct, and that changed in April to plans for a mandatory code of conduct when uh, it was reported to the government by the ACCC that negotiations had essentially broken down between digital platforms and news publishers, particularly over the issue, of course, of revenue. And it should be said that this acceleration in the process, in the sense that the ACCC had initially planned to spend more time developing that voluntary code, was really in part with uh, due to concerns with the impact of COVID on uh, newspapers and the publishing industry, right? That's right, James. So at the same time as these negotiations seem to be sort of breaking down over the issue of revenue sharing, um, obviously COVID-19, the case numbers were ramping up uh, in Australia, but also as a result of COVID-19, the impact to advertising revenue, measly advertising revenue that news publishers were still sort of clinging onto tooth and nail was dwindling even further, plummeting them into even more difficult financial situations. Okay, so clearly the political atmosphere changed as a result of COVID-19. But let's talk about the uh, code, the mandatory code. Uh, What will it allow news companies to do if it is adopted in the proposed form? The code itself is directed at the widest range of news publishers. I think it possibly 
could be aimed at, although this is up for negotiation. What the ACCC has proposed here is that any news company with annual revenue, either in the most recent accounting year or three of the last five years, of at least 150,000 Australian dollars, that's around 110,000 US dollars, can approach Australia's media authority and say, I want to bargain with the digital platforms about my commercial agreement. I want to um, enter into this process, which is then a three-month negotiation period, um, at the end of which, if there is no agreement, an independent arbiter can get involved. Now, a crucial part of this is the collective bargaining. That's what's really interesting as well, is that this code allows for any number, there is no limit, of news publishers to collectively bargain, collectively negotiate with digital platforms on these commercial agreements. And of course, we were quite quick to point out that this was an unusual example of a competition authority allowing for companies to to work together and, and collude, I suppose. Now, you pointed that out uh, during the press conference to ACCC chief uh, Rod Sims. How did he respond to that <laughs> to that question of yours? Well, sort of like this is how we do things in Australia um, when you've got, and I quote, a party on the other side that has a superior bargaining position, we will authorise collective bargaining. Now, it's not something that companies can just go ahead and do. They need to apply for that authorisation. But it's something that the ACCC will authorise when there's that real imbalance of power. They already do it, for example, um, for coal miners arranging access to ports. And he also said that that, this collective bargaining had sort of been prompted, I guess, by there was a group of 80 small, small publishers that had approached the ACCC together. Um, And he gave that example as one group that he thought were almost certainly going to bargain collectively with digital platforms. Okay, so let's assume that a group of companies approach the platforms to negotiate. But what happens if the publishers and the platforms can't agree on how much their news is worth? Well, after that three-month negotiation period, if no deal is found, then we're in this negotiate-arbitrate model. So following that three-month period, we allow for a 45-day window known as after-arbitration. And in that instance, news publishers and digital platforms submit their final offer, their final and best offer, to an independent arbitrator who chooses between the two of them. And the idea is that because there will be a decision between one of these two offers, it prompts and motivates both parties to put in what Sims was calling sort of a sensible offer, not just something that neither was ever going to accept or that wouldn't be appropriate. And companies can still agree among themselves at any point until the final arbitration decision is made. So so the key point there is that the ACCC, rightly or wrongly, but the ACCC seems uh, certain that the platform's wouldn't want to just put forward an ambit claim and they would they would enter into these negotiations in good faith because they it, to enter into arbitration would not be in their interest, right? To enter into arbitration takes the decision out of their hands. Mm. Exactly. And they don't want that. They don't want okay, that. Okay, then. And so is it all about money here or are there um, other measures in this uh, proposed code? 
Obviously, all eyes, most of our eyes, our attention was on the money side of things. But there are very clear measures within this code that are non-revenue based. That's because as well that um, public broadcasters are covered by this code and they can't get involved in the revenue side of things. But what they can get involved in are the aspects of the code that relate to data sharing. So there's an increased obligation to share information on on the side of the digital platforms an obligation on them to share uh, information when there's changes to how they are managing data, to give it more information about data, and also to um, give notification to news publishers within 28 days of any algorithm changes which could change news ranking, um, which was a key part of the uh, submissions on, on the part of news companies, both data sharing and algorithms came up a lot. Um, and, and also was something that digital platforms had pushed back against um, over privacy concerns when it came to data sharing. Often, so, That's something we often see when it comes to competition matters that digital platforms would say, if we give you more access to data, there are privacy risks. One of the things that you've already commented on is the fact that uh, Rod Sims and the ACCC seem particularly confident that the code uh, would work if it were to enter uh, into force. But this has been tried in other jurisdictions around the world, what makes the ACCC so confident? The ACCC feels that it has watched what's played out elsewhere and it has learnt from what's played out elsewhere and it can now carve a new path which the digital platforms are going to, from its perspective, find very difficult to avoid. So, for example, we've got the 2014 case in Spain which was focused specifically on Google News but then led to Google just shutting down its Google News site in Spain. But the response or the way that the ACCC has learned from that example is that this code covers a list of platforms or a list of platforms that are owned by those major tech companies, Google and Facebook, so that it's not just Google News that is targeted by this code, but it's search, YouTube even as well, so that if you take away Google News but the news that is related to the bargaining code still appears via Google search in Australia, then it's still covered by the media code. So you still need to have that commercial agreement in place to cover the news wherever it appears. Another example of the ACCC's confidence and whether or not this confidence is misplaced, we'll find out uh, in due course, I suppose. But another example is uh, when it comes to the discussion of fines. Now, assuming something like this ended up in court, Everyone, well, many journalists in Australia have pointed out that, you know, Facebook would argue that uh, the penalty that it should be facing, should it be found guilty of anything, uh, should be uh, proportionate to its business in Australia. And it would argue, therefore, that its uh, main business is registered in Ireland or the United States or wherever, and uh, therefore would be able to sidestep a major penalty. Now, Sims appeared to be reasonably confident that that wouldn't be the case, right? I'd say he was very confident, as confident as a regulator can be, who still would need to potentially end up taking um, a huge digital platform to court. But um, assuming this passes into law, uh, the code will be part of Australia's competition law, competition and consumer law, and could see digital platforms facing penalties worked out through um, different methods. But the one that's the most important here relating to these digital platforms is the 10% of their annual revenue. So it's whichever is the most out of these figures, but the one that would be the most is the 10% of annual revenue. Um, and as you say, there's an issue there with the territoriality of where you 
count your revenue. But Sims isn't worried about that, um, especially with the example of, say, Facebook Ireland. He says those figures, the ACCC has those figures, especially on Facebook Ireland, um, through compulsory information gathering powers. And he says the ACCC is ready to enforce off the back of that information. Mm. Laurel, it's uh, been great talking. Let's catch up again very soon. Thanks, James. Laurel Henning is MLEX's senior correspondent covering Australian and New Zealand regulatory affairs. She was speaking to us from Sydney. Listening into that conversation is Areski Yaish, our senior antitrust correspondent in Brussels. Now, Areski, you heard what uh, Laurel had to say just now. She mentioned the case of Spain, but of course, France has also been dealing with this issue. And we've been reading the reporting that you've been doing on recent developments with our colleague, Nicholas Hurst. So firstly, just remind me of the main similarities and differences between the French and the Australian approach. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. What is interesting in France is that the case is uh, stemming from a copyright situation, let's say. I mean, uh, it's coming from uh, uh, the French composition of, of the EU copyright directive, which in France... Uh, went beyond of the provision of the of the directive by uh, asking publishers uh, to sit on the on negotiation table with uh, Google to find a, a price mechanism to compensate press publishers. So first of all, that was uh, a new law, which is more uh, a copyright law, which turned into uh, an antitrust investigation because the press publisher considered that Google abused uh, its dominant position. Uh, because Google refused to sit at the negotiation table. Uh, Google is claiming that since at least 2015, it's invested in the press sector uh, in Europe. It's invested more than 300 million euros. And that the French transposition of the EU copyright directive was not forcing Google to pay press publishers, uh, but only to, uh, to negotiate. But the thing is that before the transposition uh, was uh, effective, Google decided unilaterally to not sit at the negotiation tables because uh, the main French press publishers were keen on pushing for a price uh, compensation. And now Google is obviously uh, in a situation where it hasn't gone to the table. It's facing this uh, antitrust investigation, all of it based on uh, copyright uh, law and this, as you've pointed out, the transposition of EU copyright, uh, the EU copyright directive. But is Google right now in saying that France and French authorities have overstepped their power uh, in trying to uh, impose this copy, in trying to force it to the negotiating table through uh, through this copyright law? So what is Google saying? You know, so the, the law was passed in October 2019. The antitrust investigation uh, after a formal complaint from the main press publishers started in December January. Then in March, there were like hearings at the French competition authorities with Google and the press publishers. And in April, the French competition authority ordered uh, Google to sit at the negotiation table uh, for three months. Uh, on the same time, uh, the French competition authority was continuing uh, its investigation to evaluate whether there is an actual antitrust misconduct from from Google. And here Google is saying that uh, its refusal to pay publishers do not pose a serious and immediate threat to the press sector. And that's why Google uh, filed an appeal on the proportionality 
of the injunctions ordered by the French Competition Authority, there is no emergency to uh, force Google to sit at the negotiation table uh, for the U.S. company, but for press publishers with a conjunction of factors like the COVID-19 and the increasing competition with all online uh, uh, media. I mean, the revenues of the press publishers in France is dramatically decreasing. So for press publishers, there is an, an emergency to sit at the negotiation table and uh, find a price mechanism which is not the case for Google. And now there is a hearing in September. Google and uh, the press publisher are going to appear in court on that particular matter. Are the interim measures ordered by the French Competition Authority proportionate? Mm. So there are some similarities with what Laurel was saying in the sense that there's obviously a crisis in the publishing industry that might be partly due to also pressure from uh, COVID-19. And there is also a changing political atmosphere. What are the politics in France surrounding the debate about how Google and Facebook operate in this space? So uh, immediately after Google uh, announced uh, in October, end of September, October, that the complying to the transposition of the EU corporate directive doesn't mean to be forced to pay press publishers. There were indeed some political pressure coming from Palais de l'Elysée, from Emmanuel Macron, the French president. Uh, in October, in a, a French-German summit in Toulouse, he clearly said that something should be done to make Google sit at the negotiation table. He didn't say that that was an antitrust matter. He didn't say it clearly, but he suggested it. And at that time, European uh, commissioner, I mean, EU competition chief, Margaret Vestager, said that it was rather a copyright matter, not an antitrust one, when she was asked by some journalist uh, back in October. But when the French Competition Authority started its investigation uh, December, January, we had no more official declarations from uh, Emmanuel Macron of other members of uh, his government. So in a way, yes, you can say that at the beginning of the case, when the French Competition Authority was, uh, was not uh, monitoring and investigating, there were uh, some political declarations. But now it seems that you don't have uh, official declarations, but we don't know what is happening behind the scene. You know, the, the political pressure is rather maybe from press publishers who are like often complaining on the fact that the situation is urgent, that their revenues are decreasing and that a free press is a, a, a very important pillar for uh, uh, the French democracy. Aretsky, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today. Let's uh, talk again very, very soon. Thanks, James. My pleasure. Bye. Aretsky Yeish is MX's senior antitrust correspondent in Brussels. And as usual, you'll be able to find some links to recent stories on this and other regulatory issues at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the Insight Centre tab. And it would be remiss of me not to remind you that our special report on the Unoil foreign bribery case is ready for you to download and it features prominently on our homepage. You can't miss it. That's it for today's podcast. We'll be in your feed throughout the northern summer and I look forward to talking to you again very soon. I'm James Panicki, Asia-Pacific Senior Editor at MNEX. Thank you so much for listening. See you again soon. Bye for now.